it's very clear from a lot of these hoaxes that um, even as people are reading these things as authentic life accounts, there is a willing suspension of disbelief um, that borders and where the crosses all the way over into being duped. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I have a great guest this week. Christopher L. Miller is the author of several books. He is a recently retired professor at Yale in the Department of French and the program in African and African American Studies there. We're going to talk about a book he published in 2018 that I adore called Imposters, Literary Hoaxes and Cultural Authenticity. Boy, this is a rabbit hole that I love. Uh, I guess most recently you had the huge scandal with Dan Mallory, tremendous article in The New Yorker about this where he is claiming to have survived inoperable brain cancer. I think his mother died of cancer. His brother was a suicide. He was impersonating his brother with emails back and forth. Um, This was somebody who claimed to have an education at Oxford, getting a PhD over there that he didn't get, Um, really obsessed with the talented Mr. Ripley and became a sort of literary version of that to to some extent. Why is this so intriguing, this subject of literary hoaxes? I think for me, it is that every deceit, every lie is a collaborative and cooperative act with the person being lied to or duped. We have to participate in order to dupe. There has to be some need that is met in us. And so in the case of these literary hoaxes, I think what Miller focuses on is, in his term, to steal suffering from groups that the author does not represent. So we have one example in the book is the author Laura Albert, who, under the name J.T. Leroy, presented a backstory of an author who was a teenage prodigy from the South who was trans, HIV positive, and was a truck stop prostitute. And this lasted for 10 years until it was uncovered. And it was difficult to uncover because Albert was able to produce a body at book readings playing the role of J.T. Leroy. So this was enormously sophisticated um, to, to do this. And it had the scaffolding of huge support from celebrities Madonna, Courtney Love, Lou Reed, Gus Van Zandt, Asia Argento directing a movie based on the book, Sarah, that Albert wrote. But the backlash was enormous because all of these communities that Leroy represented, the intersectionality of them felt exploited by this, by somebody stealing their suffering. And... and you know, we're going to look at a number of those cases. I mean, James Frey is one we talk about because with a million little pieces and the whole memoir craze in the early 2000s, he presented that book originally to his publisher as fiction. But the publisher said this should be packaged as memoir. And then it gets platformed by Oprah and explodes. And then it turns out a bunch of stuff is made up. Oprah originally defends it, gets backlash for defending it, has him back on in order to publicly pillory him for being, in her words, duped, um, virtue signaling herself. 
And I think that that's what's so intriguing to me about this is the conflation of victimization and virtue and the gravitas behind it. I mean, a, a book I love that explores, you know, I think it's way, ways of, of looking at art, um, looks at Van Gogh and just says, can you, can we possibly look at this work without knowing the backstory, without the backstory informing the work, framing it? It's just impossible to separate the two. And I know we're in this big conversation now about separating art from artists. Big thing about Roald Dahl recently, I think in the New York Magazine, reminding us of, of anti-Semitic remarks that he made and being quite a foul person in, in lots of ways. Or Michael Jackson, I think it's the 40th anniversary of Thriller. You know, all of these people, you know, Woody Allen, Louis C.K., um, you know, we talk about Rachel Dolezal appropriating being an, not just appropriating being an African-American, um, but also mailing herself nooses, amplifying the extent to which she was not just being racially profiled, but I mean, attacked the lives of, of herself and her children. Like she becomes this tremendously courageous person on behalf of, of the African-American community, except the fact that she's exploiting some measure of it for personal gain. So it's just such a rich and fraught and complicated and occasionally funny, um, maybe not funny, just strange area to talk about. So I, if this is a subject that intrigues you, Miller is super interesting to, um, to, to have a chance to talk about it with. So I hope you enjoy Christopher Miller, this week's guest on Tourist Information. I was just really falling down the rabbit hole of literary imposters and stumbled upon your I was delighted that somebody like approached this directly and head on. But I wondered what what was the germ for you that yeah. kind of got you fascinated by this topic? Well, um, I think it it I feel like it kind of happened uh, part, uh, partly by accident. It was just that I kept seeing these things. And saying, "Oh, that that's weird," you know, um, and it probably began percolating about the time of what now looks like it was some kind of a golden age of of hoaxes um, around the turn of the you know the millennium, um, and maybe <laughs> it just makes me laugh every time. But um, J T. Leroy, <laughs> um, you know, I I'll never get over it. Um, so then. I was trying to put um, threads together because so there's that and that's just, you know, seemed to me fun. And I'd spent years working on a book about the French slave trade, which was very, very grim. And, um, you know, uh, couldn't be more uh, uh, serious. And so I wanted the change of tone um, for my next project. And um, then it turns out, so going back to, you know, working for a very long time, my specialty was, is um, Francophone African literature uh, and Caribbean. So a preoccupation there from the beginning for both Africans and their kind of, you know, friends uh, and readers um, abroad, a preoccupation has always been authenticity. Right. 
And um, so then the, these two things kind of um, come together, uh, I think, in really interesting and, and, and complicated ways. Um, um, and so like in the case of, of you know, Kamara Lai, who's one of the, the most beloved to this day of um, African writers, a kind of a, you know, global uh, writer, um, it appears that what happened there was that mm, he uh, uh, was partially, he, he was a person, but he was partially kind of created or tutored or something um, by the Ministry of Colonies and by, you know, responding to a kind of a need for a certain image of Africa uh, on the part of Europeans and colonizers uh, uh, specifically. So um, anyway, that 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 was part part of the germ. And then there was another thing, which was um, somebody said, and it was a fairly widespread idea. So hoaxes are an um, Anglo-Saxon thing. Ho ho you know, it, it's uh, America. It's for <clears throat> Americans. Australians do it. Um, some Canadians do it, but no. French-speaking people don't do it. Well, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> not my former homeland. <laughs> yeah. Something that occurred to me reading your book that I thought was intriguing on a few levels is the overlap with professional wrestling. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Tell me why. <laughs> so one of the things that's always intrigued me about wrestling, which is sort of my introduction to organized religion as a little boy, uh, religion itself didn't make any sense to me by beyond the age of, say, three or four, but wrestling sure did. And yet it's the same dynamics at work. Yeah. It's a controlled experiment. Some guy was watching wrestling, which goes back to Greece, you know, 2,500 years, 3,000 years and thought, why bother with this competition idea? Why not just add theater and give people what they want? With the caveat that intrigues me, that yeah. we'll, we'll have this kind of omerta to not acknowledge that it's fraudulent. Right. And yet everything gives it away that it, like as with religion, the most obvious point is the most closely guarded secret that it's fake. Yeah, right. I love it. I love it. And uh, that it brings back very fond childhood memories of Saturday afternoons in, right. you know, in the basement. <laughs> but but none, nonetheless, there is a search for authenticity within the fraudulence, which yeah, is very right. meaningful for people. Yeah, and, yeah. and that controlled experiment is dictated by the audience, which I think is the same thing with the literary hoaxes, is yeah, if yeah. we need a spokesman for this group or this issue, Yes, you yes. incentivize the person to come in, and yes, I think yes. there's a book called Lie Spotting that makes the observation all lies are a cooperative act. Uh, oh, I like I yeah. I, I didn't know that um, that book, but it's also that. So, <laughs> the wrestler walks in as Joe Schmo, and then becomes you know Haystacks Calhoun or you know whoever <laughs> uh, whoever it was, and in the and the other sense. Each hoaxing author created this artificial uh, alter ego. Right. Um, you, and, you 
You mentioned JT Leroy has never seen a truck stop in her life, but she becomes a truck stop prostitute. Exactly. Yeah. She becomes the Southerner, even though she's never really been to the South and doesn't seem to know anybody from the South, but she's aware of the prejudices of the South with people of her own tribe. And apparently it didn't take much to, uh, for, um, you know, the person whose real name now is escaping me, but the the sister of the boyfriend who impersonated uh, J.T. Leroy, um, uh, Savannah. Yeah, Knopp, yeah. is that right? Yeah, yes, I, yeah, something like that. And so it, that's another thing where, so wrestlers, uh, it, it's a body in motion that's you know sent into the ring but there's this wonderful phrase that um maybe it was savannah herself in her version of the story after it came out or maybe it was um um laura um albert. laura albert yeah but one one of them said at a certain point we realized we had to produce a body right exactly and of course, uh, hoax hoaxers often reach that point and they go two ways. They either do or they don't. And so, um, like the, the super famous um, French one, the, maybe the master hoaxer, Romain uh, Gary, um, uh, uh, um, you know, he just invented this name, Emile Ajar. And then he had this kind of cousin who went out into the world pretending to be Emile Ajar. Right. Um, and, and, you know, chaos ensued um, uh, for the real author because the cousin, his behavior couldn't be controlled and and uh, it really, you know, it ended, well, it, it really ended and, and there's reason to think there was some causality. Yeah, it, it ended with um, uh, Romain, Romain Gary committing suicide. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's another thing here. Maybe this is a tangent, but um, I picked this subject up thinking it was, <clears throat> pardon me, pure fun and games. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, the ludic element. Um, but there are several suicides um, that, that, you know, yeah. wound up, uh, you know, cut, uh, most notably the, the, the guy who I devote kind of the last third of the book to um, called himself Leger. And, um, you know, it was very clear, you know, he suffered lifelong from um, uh, bipolar disorder. And he knew it and he, he knew he was extremely lucid about um, the relation between hoaxing and, you know, mental illness, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that's where things go, go dark. Um, uh, not in every case, of course. There, there are, I think, plenty of happy hoaxers, but but not all of them. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting within wrestling. I believe that they pulled away the mask from it being scripted uh, in the mid-90s. And, exactly. it and it had no negative or adverse impact to the popularity whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, now the question is not what is wrestling in culture, I mean, American mm-hmm. culture, but what isn't professional wrestling which relates to trump (laughs) and and so i mean that that's why i raise it somewhat is is you're working on this book and i was reading a a kind of critique of it in vanity fair 
Um, as Miller is working on the book, the world turned and he realized that fakery is no longer just a classroom sport. Quote, it is hard, harder to see the fun and deception when the fate of the world seems to depend on resisting lies, alternative facts, and fake news, as he puts it. It seems to have taken the election of a man who is the personification of pers perspectivalism, sorry, I had difficulty pronouncing that, to reset the ethical calibrations of literary criticism. So I just thought, I thought that's so interesting that we're getting sort of yeah. Don Quixote inspired literary meta narrative where I've found a book and I lose a chapter somewhere and then I'll come back and find it, but oh, it's in Arabic. We can't trust those people. So I'll get back to it in a minute. And and all the way up to the purchase that the Matrix got in terms of what's reality and, and, and what's some sort of, um, yeah, yeah. Not, not hologram, but, but a simulation to yeah, Trump yeah. and alternative facts and yeah, Suddenly, yeah. as you're working on this thing, uh, the whole world is taken in by what is what is true and what isn't, and and are we allowed to have our own truths and our own facts? Yeah, that that's right. And, um, so um, and it, it's so interesting about you know the wrestling analogy and the the removal of the mask doesn't count. So that's what made me um, think of Trump because you know how many masks has he has he taken off? Um, you know, starting, you know, with the the, uh, the Hollywood um, tape, um, uh, you know, where he's saying uh, horrendous things and it and it doesn't matter. And, you know, there's another mask. And, you know, I cheat on my taxes because I'm smart and, and that doesn't matter. And so but with literary hoaxers, you know, some um, have taken the secret to, to the to the grave um, and then others have defended themselves by saying, well, it's it, uh, and it was the um, oh boy, I know I should have flipped through my own book before <laughs> I talked to you, but the uh, the kid uh, the kid in L.A. who was actually written by um, all right, Chica uh, pretending to be a Chicano, a Chicano kid. Um, um, so, what's the title? Um, Santiago, famous all over town. Yes, D Danny uh, Santiago. So. When the author, the real author, um, was revealed, uh, he said, "Well, if the book, if the book's any good, what do you, what do you care? Who wrote it?" Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I I love that because I mean I want to get to Laura Albert I think last yeah. because it's such it's such rich terrain there. But I mean. What I found fascinating is, I mean, I, I've always responded to this on a very deep level. As I say, I think wrestling primed me for it um, because whatever your prejudice was, it would present you a body, as you say. Mm. They have mm. the character who is making homoerotic um, dog whistles to everybody, and we get to see how the audience deals with it, how masculinity deals with that. Yeah. Um, we get to see the person from Harlem who who becomes an ambassador of what that is as, as a concept, which is just so intriguing to me how you have this controlled experiment by a few white men, conservative white men, which I think is the base of the writer's room for wrestling, yeah. essentially, essentially taking any um, foreign conflict and just pulling a character from it. Yeah. You know, the yeah. Persian Gulf, we have uh, the yeah. Iron Sheik, you know, we have Hulk Hogan defending America. We have um, 
people who are, are the Bolsheviks from the Soviet Union collapse. I mean, anything you can think of, they just sort of throw somebody at it and see if yeah. people respond either negatively or positively. And right. right. And uh, not to not to belabor the point too much, but but you you lay out this whole taxonomy of of uh, authorial falsification. So we have ghostwriters, we have nom de plume to plagiarism to forgery. And I thought like I was approached once by Lance Armstrong to ghostwrite the in quotes tell all. I um, I, I read that that, that you, you, when you um, wrote about it, yeah. Yeah, and and I remember at the time meeting him and asking like the manager he had, yeah. when did you know that this was a fraud? And he said, I never asked. Ah. Uh, so yeah. Very right? I mean. Yes. Oh, that's fascinating. So I I just I just wondered when you're when you're looking at all of these different classes of forger forgers as they say the taxonomy of it yeah um, what did you make of their motivations for doing it and our I'm speaking our as the audience our yeah. needs to have a body a voice um, an avatar right right well it's hard to um, Let's see, let's take the example of um, uh, Romagheri and um, the, what was it called in English? Um, I, I'm gonna cheat by looking at my, my bookshelf. No problem. Um, uh, so, um, this is the one, um, it, rema uh, it remains, it, so it, it was translated as life before me. I mean, that would be the literal uh, translation. And I don't know if it's had any success in English at all, but it's absolutely huge. And um, it's easy enough to guess what the reason is, is it's a, it's a happy talk version of French immigration. Now, immigration in France, you know, since the 1970s has, you know, it, it, it drives a lot of the politics and um uh you know particularly it drives the right wing and here you have Omagari um who came to France as a uh, very young man a Jewish refugee uh from originally from uh, Lithuania I think he was born and um he's telling it it's a, a kind of a rose-colored glasses version of um of French immigration and with this, you know, what seems to me, um, th there's a mother figure in here, Madame Rosa, and she embodies the Republic. And, you know, the Republic is, it's everything good <laughs> um, uh, for a good French person, to, you know, that's your religion. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so it it was a way, you know, it, it, um, you can see how what it did for him biographically, autobiographically. But you can also you can understand the popularity because, boy, this is a story people, French people wanted to hear. Right. Um, and it's I don't know if it's cause and effect, but there's a whole bunch of movies in particular 
that put the same rosy spin on uh, immigration and interracial relations um, in, uh, in France. And they're often kind of comedies. And but the but the bottom line is feel good. Right. right. <laughs> um, so, but I, you know, maybe too soon to go to JT Leroy, but I think uh, there's also uh, there's a feel bad version of feel good, which is um, uh, your uh, uh, abjectness and you know, my response to your abjectness as, you know, one of the least privileged people, uh, most underprivileged people I've ever heard of, and the fact that you have become a writer, that makes me feel good. Right. Uh, whether I, you know, I'm the bookstore owner who's inviting you or the people who are who are packing in, but oh, you know, it just. <laughs> well, it's like it's like Starbucks, isn't it? Where I'm, you're not just buying a cup of coffee. You are supporting clean water efforts in Guatemala and ethically sourced blah, blah, blah in Ethiopia and, and on and on and on. And, and I always thought about creating a resume that I would use to pitch that I don't I don't just have any previous employment. However, I'm an international charitable ambassador on the basis of the coffee I buy from Starbucks. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> What you you say uh, there are literary impersonations in which the author assumes the racial or ethnic identity of someone else. These are usually memoirs, autofictions, or books that pretend to speak for the group to which the fake author is assumed to belong. Uh, one review said Miller calls these intercultural hoaxes. There are hoaxes designed to insinuate a subversive message through a benign-seeming work, a wolf in sheep's clothing text. And Miller calls these Trojan horses, and there are hoaxes aimed at exposing the poor judgment of editors, critics, or readers, which he calls time bombs. And I wondered, I, I don't recall it being referred to in the book, but one of the best-selling hoaxes, I think it's been exposed as a hoax, it's fair to say, is Papillon, which is Henri Cherrier, uh, like, went to jail but what's been explored is that he wove together a tapestry of the best stories he found <laughs> and, and never actually stayed on Dev Devil's Island. I, I think that's right. I, that's great. I didn't know it. Uh, I wish I had known that. Um, uh, that's, that's really wonderful. When did that come out, do you know? Oh, when did it come out? I mean, I think he died in 73. Oh, that uh, early? Okay. Yeah, because he was, I think he was pardoned in 1970 mm. and was kind of looking for a quick way to make a buck, as it were. Uh-huh. Uh, let me see if I can just find it. Um, oh. So, so it's 1973 is the film. And the book came out in 1970 with the quote, the caveat, 75% of it is true. <laughs> that's, a very, that's a very interesting figure. Uh, it's kind of like, hmm, which 75%, I wonder. Well, isn't that a nice shell game? Um, yeah. one, one thing, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm just so curious about your take. Um, I'm working on something that kind of pivots on, I think, the same terrain as you, which is another author, co controversial in terms of how he entered the cultural space, 
is the 2003 Booker Prize winner, DBC Pierre, instead of inventing a great backstory to sell his book, his backstory, which was sensationally lurid, was revealed by people that he had duped as a con artist. And he did everything he could to prevent it. But because it was so salacious and was getting on the front page of all the UK newspapers, it almost ensured more more publicity for the Booker Prize than it ever received before or since and locked him to, to win the award over luminaries like Margaret Atwood. I, I just thought it was interesting. If you look at people whose backstories, I mean, I think Vincent Van Gogh is the most obvious, cement our way of looking at the art irrevocably in a positive way. Whereas if we didn't have the backstory, we might never revere the work anywhere near with the same kind of emotional connection. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right, that's right. And I think, you know, one of the takeaways from the entire project for me was, um, you know, the author ain't dead. Um, and, you know, most people, I dare say, still believe in authorship and authority and authenticity, and they crave it and they want it and they will give prizes uh, uh, for it. And then, um, you know, it's like the scandal with um, James, what's his name, and, and Oprah, uh, Fry, yeah. yeah. Uh, as, how dare you? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, nobody misleads Oprah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, just still expectations for for truth, um, re, you know, remain remain very, very high, even even as they are. They're so embattled in our culture and so fragmented and, you know, uh, everything seems kaleidoscopic and everything is through multi layers of, uh, of of representation and fragmentation. But um, somehow still we're, we're able to be, you know, shocked, shocked uh, to learn, how dare you tell me a story uh, uh, that, that isn't true. And, you know, what some of these author, authors do, uh, J.T. Leroy may, may have done this, um, uh, uh, but not, not just her, but several, they, they point to the novel and they say, what part of the word novel do you not understand? Right. Yeah. Um, so it, and uh, so my guy uh, Leger, he did that uh, right. uh, after he was exposed, and, and his his book was you know was a, was a sensation, and um, uh, everybody took it to be authentic, an authentic representation of of you know Burr. Um, you know, second generation Arab immigrants in um, uh, in France. Every this is this is the book. This this is speaking for uh, for those people. Right. Um, so being a show off, um, he he said something that Gary uh, also said, which was, "Oh, I wrote it in a cafe in uh, uh, on vacation. Took two weeks." Show off, you know. <laughs> Jack Kerouac writing on the road in three weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's real. It's a it's a version of contempt for those who have been duped, which is you know, look how easy you were to fool. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> well, and I mean, I just lost my train of thought for one second. But um, with, I I guess. 
one of the things I'm curious about with this dynamic is a, a fundamental premise of magic is, is the uh, incredible value that's placed on secrecy. Because if we understand how a magic trick works, it loses all of the wonder and magic that it produces in us. And it feels it cheapens it. It cheapens our relationship to the magician and it cheapens why we're there on some level. We need to suspend the disbelief in order to sustain this artificial sense of whatever it elicits in us. However, the opposite works in artistic tricks. When I know through Van Gogh's letters what was required to produce the art, it enhances the art. Uh -huh. yeah. When I learn that, as you're saying with JT Leroy, when I find out that this is a teenage prodigy who was a truck stop prostitute, who has HIV and was serially abused, it makes the work that much more towering an achievement. Oh, yeah. Why is it one way with magic and another way with art? Why is it the opposite? Because I, I don't quite understand the mechanics of that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Gee, I'm, I don't really have an answer for that. I haven't really thought about magic. And yet, um, it's very clear from a lot of these hoaxes that um, even as people are reading these things as authentic life accounts, there is a willing suspension of disbelief um that borders and where the crosses all the way over into being duped right um and, and all the mechanics of magic also sleight of hand yeah uh, you know it's it's it, i mean it's not an accident that orson wells has clifford irving in f for fake to explore the the um intersectionality of the of these dynamics is it uh, yeah yeah that's right that's right and you know seeing behind the screen where the wizard of oz is uh right. you know, uh, uh, doing his thing, but that's you know, another thing that fascinates me about me uh, about uh, the phenomenon is before and after, um, which can turn on a dime, right? And as you as you can see, you know, one of my preoccupations was uh, so what what about you know my generation of literary critics? We were taught well, text just it's all about the text. Anything else was was really beneath contempt, um, right? right? Um, just, so just uh, what, what does the text say? So, you know, try reading <laughs> a text the same way if you think it's written by an African or if you think it's written by a committee in the Ministry of Colonies in Paris. Absolutely. You're going to tell me that it's the same thing? Because I don't know. Um, and that's, that's right. where you get that, that that kind of double thing, you know, the the, the drawing of the that's the the profiles or the goblet, um, depending on how your eye is is working, um, and you know you you get this kind of vertigo. I I feel as a reader, um, which itself that that's kind of what kept me going and kept me laughing through this <laughs> through this project. Well, I mean, one of the ways I, I actually invited um, Laura Albert to to come on to talk talk about the documentaries and and yeah. all of the controversy that was stirred up. She she didn't want to talk about yeah. rehash this stuff. But one of the approaches I wanted to do is I noticed there was a documentary about um, 
what was it? The the serial killer at the University of Washington, Ted Bundy. Oh yeah. One of the ways that they were able to get his participation in helping solve other serial killers and other crimes was mm-hmm. to say, let's not look at your crimes that you don't admit that you did. Is yeah, let's yeah. let's think of if if you were somebody else looking at this, how would you interpret this serial killer? And he participated in uh-huh. some other serial killer's crimes uh-huh. and and unwittingly was revealing himself nonstop. So uh-huh. one of the things I wanted to do with with Albert was to explore like Rachel Dolezal appropriating being black. Yes. And uh, I mean, allegedly um pretending to have endured hate crimes, like receiving a noose in the mail, when it turned Mm -hmm. out she likely was putting it there herself and then calling the media in just to enhance the trauma that she was suffering as an African-American woman and her position in the African-American community, enhancing, 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 but when it's inconvenient to be African-American, she becomes white and sues a black university, et cetera. I, I I just was curious if, if her story resonated with you in in some adjacent way to all of the cases you explored. Uh, you mean Dolezal? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so like when I was um, uh, putting the book together and also teaching these things as the course, I would use her as an example of the kind of thing I'm, I'm not going to talk about because she didn't do her hoax by means of literature. So right. the, the book came after the fact, right? She was a performance artist in the sense that, you know, she was getting she was getting jobs with the NAACP and, you know, she she was living the life. But my um, I, I, I uh, tried to keep my focus on uh, people who did it by means of literature uh, alone. So that, you know, there these are there's so many adjacent practices. Um, they all kind of flow uh, one into the other of, of representation and misrepresentation. And I mean, I'm working on uh, plagiarism again, a novelist who uh, um, made an art form, uh, an African novelist who made an art form out of, uh, you could call it plagiarizing or borrowing so heavily that, <laughs> you know, it's kind of unbelievable. But no, I, um, uh, the Dolezal case uh, uh, remains, I think, of, of great interest. You know, she's, she's taken um, an African name was the latest I'd heard. It was like Aisha Keita or something, uh, something you know, com- so going com- just completely uh, other. <laughs> Doubling down, I guess you could call it. <laughs> well, I did. I think I did read it. I don't recall what the name is, but I also read she's yeah. begun an OnlyFans account so that she can parade herself wow. for profit. Um, I, I, I guess her book did not sell terribly well, despite the media tour. Um, I wonder, do, do you see Hemingway as a kind of early performance artist, as you call it? I mean, not. I mean, to a degree, cultural appropriation. I, I, I guess. Uh, no, I mean, no, none of his characters are exactly claiming to be from somewhere else. I guess the old man, the sea, he's claiming to be a Cuban fisherman. Um, but, but certainly 
the relationship between his autobiography and you you talk about this in the book in terms of autofiction, Canossgard um, getting all kinds of purchase that if he said, uh, I, I made it up, nobody would believe him because it seems so authentic. Hemingway was always blurring that line himself, but very frequently lying endlessly about the backstory in order to enhance the way you would look at the authority of the text in fiction. He he came back from Italy as the first soldier who was wounded there. Well, he wasn't a soldier. He was handing out chocolate. Um, yeah. <laughs> Roald Dahl, and nothing wrong with, with that. I mean, he's an ambulance driver handing out chocolate and cigarettes, but he was not a soldier when yeah, he was right. blown up. Um, Roald Dahl claimed to have been shot down. There's an article shot down in, in, in the Middle East. He wasn't shot down. He couldn't find a landing strip and he crashed. He ran out of gas. Ooh, yeah. yeah. But, but toward the end of his life, as he told that story, even to his wife, it was recounted <laughs> with the spin and not the fact, even to his wife. Yeah. Which is interesting. So uh, I just, yeah. I, I just wondered with, people that manufacture backstories do you see that as a form when, when the backstory is 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 sort of leading the way that they're written about as much as the work do you see that as a form of performance art as well yeah um i, I do and sometimes it, it you know it throws up um red flags and sometimes it's just you know who's going to come along to to bust them, mm. uh, you know, who, um, if nobody else was there, um, you know, there, there, <laughs> there are cases like that. It's just that, you know, the person is going to have to confess. But um, I don't know if you know, um, uh, there's an author, a kind of a wunderkind um, in France. Um, he, he's changed his name to Edouard Louis. Um, and he was born Eddie Belgueul, which is a funny name in French. Um, and he's written several, he's kind of told the same story of a very, very hard uh, upbringing in northern France. Um, a gay kid, um, uh, escaping homophobia, intense homophobia in his uh, in his family and in the community uh, and so on, and then then being discovered. So it's a real and, and he's gone on to a, a brilliant career um, in publishing and he's he's uh, he's greatly celebrated. Now, I am not saying that he uh, that he's a hoax, but I'm, I'm giving it as an example of the kind of thing you're talking about where the life really is um, uh, inseparable from the work and vice versa. And of course, you know, the French kind of invented this notion of autofiction. And so Annie Ernaud, who just won the Nobel Prize um, and has written dozens of books and, you know, they're, they're, they're wonderful. Um, uh, again, a similar story of uh, it's not, what do you call it? Um, ascension sociale. So, so not, it's not social climbing, yeah, but it's, you know, rising in society. And what's the, the phrase in English for that? Uh, um, ascending, um, 
um, social, no, hmm. in any case, you know, rising in the, the class, the socioeconomic class system. So um, much as, you know, you would say of, of J.T. Leroy, um, uh, this uh, Edouard Louis and uh, Annie Arnaud, um, uh, so d different versions, um, gender questions, um, of course, uh, run through this, but uh, Annie Arnaud, um, you know, she's got this tremendous body of work, almost all of which is, is, is autofiction. Um, the tale of, not tale, but the account of her uh, getting an abortion as a young, as a very young woman, um, it, you know, should be required reading for Americans uh, at this point. Absolutely compelling. But, you know, and you'll know there's a case where uh, my gut tells me every every word she's written is true, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. Well, and it, it, interesting also, I mean, I meant to point this out when you raised it, but the J James Frey being publicly pilloried by Oprah, hmm. Well, there's, there's two two points to that that are particularly intriguing to consider. One, the publisher, when they received the book, it was a, presented as a work of fiction. And they said it would be better if it was a memoir. Uh, two. The market talking there, right? Yeah, exactly. And two is that when Oprah initially heard that it, that it was fraudulent, she said, what difference does it make? If it resonated with people, it resonated with people. <laughs> Why do we have any qualms about this until the backlash to that perspective was I need to publicly pillory him to show my own virtue? And and that's something I wanted to get at is in a climate where there is this seeming conflation between being a victim and that being a victim is virtuous, um, which it seems to be like there's there's cultural capital in being a victim. And it's yeah. it's intriguing to me to look at, in a sense, there's there's a kind of cross current, which is we can look at systemic forms of discrimination that are abundantly clear, yeah, but yeah. at the same time recognize with some of these hoaxes, how if you embody one of these groups, you have a much better chance of being noticed by, let's say a white editor or publishing, which is all white, for their own benefit to hire you and allow your ascendancy to protect them or to assist them in their own search for status or virtue. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I, find, I find that dichotomy very intriguing. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And uh, yeah, the, the question of virtue runs through uh, uh, a lot of these, if only the implied virtue of, because a lot of these, it, it, the backstory is how I became a writer. Right. Oh. If you became a writer, well, obviously you have um, ascended, particularly because you just got done telling us how abject your youth was or how you grew up someplace where nobody knew how to uh, read and write, uh, even if it's in an immigrant community in a, a, a first world country. Right. So good for you. You know, <laughs> um, aren't, you, aren't you something? And then if it turns out, guess what? The that was a fake, and the real author went to Yale, um, like the real author of Danny, you know, it was, what, what was his name? St. James, Daniel. Dan Mallory. 
um, uh, uh, well, that's when people get mad, and <laughs> uh, right. because that that cha changes the whole thing. What well, what ascent? What ascent? What's going on here? In fact, is a, a downward-looking periscope, right? Go, go, going down into uh, um, uh, less privileged privileged uh, parts of society, or going out into the colonies and coming back with the treasure of oh, those people aren't they interesting? Um, let's ventriloquize. I love that term. Yeah, I love the way you you explored it in that context. Because I mean, I was also thinking this is a story I was utterly fascinated by the James Hogue con artist who got into Princeton pretending to be, I think it was Alexi Santana, uh, a, a goat herder in the middle of the desert who was self-taught. <laughs> I got to write this down. Um, it's a wonderful New Yorker article. Uh, Dave Samuels, I think around 2000. Oh, um, but it, page. Yeah, and, and it was expanded into a book that added absolutely nothing, unfortunately. Uh -huh. But James Hogue essentially um, went to university, very, very bright guy, went yeah, to university yeah. and was competing against international level cross country runners who were 30 years old and Olympic caliber while he's 18, 19, they're 30 and mm -hmm. they've since banned that practice. So in a sense, he then... Um, fraudulently got back into high school in order to compete against high school athletes <laughs> and looked like the most promising prodigy that had ever been seen in, in running. And somebody caught him, somebody recognized him, he ran away and then began this attempt to get into Princeton by recognizing the fraud of Princeton, which is that it, we're a meritocracy. It yeah, doesn't yeah, matter yeah. that one in three of us is legacy. Um, because we'll let somebody with an ambiguously Latino name who's a goat herder who says he's just like Huckleberry Finn, which is the exact um, the, yeah. the exact person that you, your dean has signified as the ideal candidate for Princeton. It would be Huckleberry Finn. So, <laughs> so, Hogue, so Hogue at age 30 with a fake quasi-Latino name um, with this incredible essay talking about reading Homer under the stars in the desert as he's goat herding, gets in and legitimately is a superb runner and legitimately is a straight A student. Yeah. But when he's exposed, the Dean's way of resolving it is to say, you never attended here because you applied under false pretenses. Yeah. Wow. Oh man. I missed that one. That's, that's fascinating. It's so pretty it, Hogue, H-O-A-G? H-O-G-U-E, I believe. Oh, okay. H-O-G. I have to look for that. Oh, so the, the New Yorker article. Yeah, I think it's 2000. Um, I guess a recent one to ask you about is the Jumi Bello plagiarism scandal, where uh, plagiarizing, I think, spoken word in China and then coming back to the Iowa Writers Group, Iowa Writers Group, there were revealed emails that they were looking for an African-American star to uh -huh. use as a kind of poster that they're not as racist as maybe they might be accused to be. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But unfortunately, Bellow, um, I think it it was 
revealed that something like 60%, I want to say, of her novel was plagiarized. Oh, wow. Wow. I don't know the case. Okay. Uh, it's very interesting to me because, as I said, I'm, I don't know if you've ever heard the name uh, Yambo Wologem. This is a novel that dates from 1968. Huh. And it... It was famous for two things. First of all, it kind of um, blew away sentimental, nostalgic negritude with a vision of African history that was, you know, the colonizers never had anything to do with anything. Africans have always been running their own affairs and there's always been violence. So this, this was really very revolutionary. And then it turned out very quickly that he, um, he'd been plagiarizing. Huh. Uh, Graham Greene, um, uh, there's this, uh, um, what do you call it, uh, hard-boiled fiction writer called John D. McDonald, you know, somebody who wrote hundreds of books. And then, so, uh, my current project is, I'm trying to put together, so nobody has ever done this, a complete catalog of everything in here that's plagiarized. Huh. And it's, it's taking months. Because, uh, and I, I can't put a percent on it, but um, there are just dozens and dozens and dozens uh, of things. So it goes beyond plagiarism as cheating and into some kind of really weird art form because he made things much harder for himself. But, you know, why did he bother? Um, uh, whereas, you know, you think of plagiarism and as a professor, of course, you have to prosecute plagiarism as a form of dishonesty and, and of cheating, academic dishonesty, you know, that's what it's called. Um, but this is like, well, hmm. <laughs> and nobody, he didn't explain it himself, even after he was busted. Um, he put, he, he defended himself quite weakly and went, went home to Mali and was never heard from again. Um, but it raises all kinds of questions all these years later, uh, about what, what he was doing. Um, it was almost all European stuff or, uh, I mean, there's, uh, stuff from Baldwin and in every case, and I know he was laughing out loud when he did this but he took a passage from his american hard-boiled fiction thing and in there there's an airplane in the passage that he took and he changed <laughs> he had to africanize everything huh. because the novel is set in africa so the airplane becomes a hyena <laughs> god <laughs> And he's doing this time and time again. And I swear he was he was having a wonderful time. So again, it was, you know, ludic. There's there's some kind of ludic thing. But he you know, he didn't let everybody in on the joke. And here I'm spending the rest of my life trying. <laughs> well, it's such an interesting excavation because I mean now there's a common trope in the world of comedy, which I'm not that familiar with beyond you know, tangentially getting interested in something. But joke thievery is a huge phenomenon in the world of comedy. 
and that's intriguing that I mean even figures like Robin Williams were paying off people left and right because he was stealing jokes yeah. And, and if you had performers that were on the way up at comedy clubs, if Robin Williams was known to be in the audience, they wouldn't use their best material because then Williams would go on an HBO special and it would look like they were stealing from him. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was thinking also. You know, it's interesting, like Lawrence of Arabia, I know that he, what is it, what is it, the seven towers of wisdom or something like that? Seven pillars of wisdom. Seven pillars of wisdom. Yeah. There, yeah. There's all kinds of claims in that book where the veracity has been highly questioned, like the, the speed at which he crossed the desert. Um, nobody has ever been able to reproduce it. <laughs> so maybe he did. I mean, sort of a Lance Armstrong thing again. Yeah. But, but I, it is intriguing to me the people that seem to, it almost enhances our appreciation of them to tell the tall tale versus somebody else needs to be canceled. Yes. Yes. That's right. So I, I, I kind of wondered, I mean, there's a, a, another case that happened, I think, 2014, and again, speaking from the audience needing something versus yeah, yeah. Uh, the person who's supplying it is entirely at fault. I mean, I, we do bear part of the blame in this, I think, to a degree. Um, Sabrina Rubin Erdely um, in Rolling Stone did an article about the University of Virginia, a student who was supposedly gang raped at a frat house. Yes. She wasn't. And... Um, Yep. This became a huge scandal for Rolling Stone that it wasn't fact-checked because you shouldn't fact-check yeah. the claim like that because you'd be re-traumatizing somebody, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and Rolling Stone is getting all of this virtue for pursuing the, the exposing the truth of this epidemic. And I'm not making light of rape on campus, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But it's a bit a bit like the Janet Cook thing at the Washington Post. Yes. Uh, Jimmy's world and finding a child heroin addict and it's an African-American yep. academic superstar winning the Pulitzer Prize, which again, these yep. are committees that are comprised almost entirely of white people who only almost exclusively give their awards to white people, yeah. suddenly, suddenly being taken to task for that practice, yeah. needing a token yep. uh, or at least being incentivized to find a token example of yes. that or not what they're being accused of. I. I yeah. just do you think that this is going to become increasingly a problem? Like, are we incentivizing more frauds like this? Um, I think they're yeah. They, it's almost like they don't need incentive, whatever that word is, incentivizing. Incentivization. Um, uh, it's it's just I, I think it, you know it's built into um, the you know structures of inequality. The way. Um, inequality of representation. And as long as there's inequality of representation, and, and that, you know, representation includes publishing and prizes and circulation and bestseller lists and, and you know, all of that stuff that, uh, uh, but you, you, you could talk about movies and um, any form of representation, but as long as there's a vacuum or a perceived vacuum, um, I think the incentive is there to represent or misrepresent or, and this is where my, my attention went with 
to, to hoax. Right. right? Um, and uh, I, I, I think, it, you know, it, it now appears in retrospect that there was this kind of golden age. And, um, the, you know, we could construct some kind of narrative where, oh, nobody would dare do that now because they get canceled. And because, it, you know, um, the concept of cultural uh, appropriation and misappropriation has uh, come to be so widely accepted, you know, that there is such a thing as, you know, you're not supposed to represent a group that you aren't, right? That That's really, so no more hoaxes, right? Well, <laughs> the thing with hoaxes, you, until, you, until you know, you don't know, <laughs> right? Um, and I wonder if there's a gray area here too, because I'm thinking about this incentivization of, of virtue signaling. Yeah. There was a, a wonderful article that was in the, the Times a few years ago by um, the Pulitzer Prize winning film critic, Wesley Morris. Yes, and and it reminds me of an adage that that Orson Welles said about the appeal of Charlie Chaplin and Woody Allen is they're both artists in his words who say who expose themselves naked and say look at how small my penis is and don't you adore me for it. Yeah. Well, so so Wesley Morris did an article about the last taboo in film, which was the black penis. Was, was what he was putting forward. And it was a hugely compelling essay. Like, I mean, the argument totally stood up. Yeah, and yeah. the last half of it was autobiographical, where he talked about having a sexual encounter with a man, a white man, where he's just met the person, they come back to his apartment, and when Wesley Morris reveals himself naked, he is not sufficiently endowed for this man um, to want to consummate what's happened. And the guy leaves. Well, because of the whole context of the article, it's suggested that this is exclusively because of racism and racial prejudices about him being super endowed. Yeah. But there's nothing in terms of evidence to clarify that that's the truth. Yeah. This guy could have just been obsessed yeah. with sign size for any number of reasons. But yeah. because in Wesley Morris's mind, yeah. it has to be this. Um, it is that, and I didn't see one person put forward that your own rather bloodthirsty neuroses on this issue may not be what was in this guy's head. You might have asked, you yeah. might have clarified, um, but your inference is just an inference, and it, it fits nicely into the context of your essay, but it doesn't make it true. Mm, yeah, yeah, very interesting. And, and I, I, I'm not I'm not saying I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. But I, what I thought was intriguing was the, the response to it was how brave, how how what what, what audacity to be willing to bear yourself yeah, to, yeah. To, to to us in this way. And yeah, yeah. I, I just thought, you know, you you lay out so many people that are going to the well of trauma and and trying to find any kind of, uh, you have a great quote from Laura Albert. Maybe we should just get to her before we finish. Do we still have five minutes? Is that okay? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great, yeah. Um, I think you use the, she uses the term, you quote her with um, gender fluidity. Yes. Um, she says, today it's such a blessing that people have the words gender fluid. 
and you interpret this. In other words, she was ahead of her time, bravely challenging the barriers of identity and gender, not simply mm -hmm. running a money-making scam constructed <laughs> out of the suffering of others. <laughs> but but you also point out that when the backstory was going to be revealed for the fraud that it was, yeah. she's on tape admitting or, or listening to a friend in consultation saying you will, in her words, be lynched for what's happened from the gay community, from, yeah. from groups that are supportive of HIV infected people, the trans community, everybody that she is ostensibly representing, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. they are going to interpret this as you're exploiting and a profiteer and you don't represent any of these groups you're you're in a very crass way um, yeah, yeah. stealing our suffering to use your term so yeah. I, I i wonder how how you square her ability to see herself as a pioneer of something positive to do with this scandal versus yeah. how what the reaction was from the people that actually embody the groups that she is pretending to represent yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you try working on stuff like this. You try at not to play. Um, how do you say too much of a blame game, um, and to appreciate the art of the hoax, right? Uh, I, I, I I certainly tried that, um, and there are some cases where um, the <clears throat> the so-called crime was purely on paper. And so somebody, you know, he published this book and, um, you know, a number of others under the same name. Um, they put out this, you know, as I was saying, this kind of rosy view of French immigration. So, you know, um, one of the questions that I that I framed the book with this question, how do you say it in Latin, but who, who was harmed? Um, yeah. Queen Malo? Yeah. <laughs> Queen Malo. <laughs> <That's> yeah. <like laughs> um, it doesn't mean who's bad, but who, who was harmed, right? right? And that that question is often asked rhetorically. The the implied answer being, well, nobody was harmed. And a number of the authors themselves said that. So, you know, get get over it. But it, the thing, one of the, the takeaways from the, the JT Leroy thing is, well, you have people themselves, you know, a kind of an HIV positive group in San Francisco that, you know, stood up and said, well, no, this harms. Right. This has harmed us. And, um, you know, and who am I to say, oh, get over it? You know, um, so I, I, I do take a pretty judgy view of 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 Laura uh, Albert and um I think the fact that she has as far as I know she gave no quarter whatsoever to those um complaints no I yeah. never read any ever ever her apologizing no no um which would seem to me pretty basic Particularly because it was, uh, it was this, ex you know, such an extraordinary feat of uh, of, of hoaxing, and uh, ten years of it as well. Not not it's not a two week exercise. Ten years sent to Paris by the New York Times. Yeah, 
Yeah, and bringing all these celebrities in who themselves, their brand is improved by association. I mean, it's such an unbelievable undertaking behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, they were taking numbers to line up to virtue signal. Right, right. Um, And I mean, it also reminds me a bit of the Gaitalese book that was retracted, the Voyeur Motel, Uh, this sort of clandestine, low rent Alfred Kinsey examination of American sexuality through spying on people at a motel. (laughs) Oh, God. Um, uh, Just just quickly, quickly, um, I wondered, I mean, American Dirt is some kind of gray area here. Uh, yeah. Gigantically successful. Yes. Oprah is behind it again. We love Oprah just seems to come in all over the place here. Yes. Um, the woman is kind of identifying as Latinx, but it turns yeah. out she's like a quarter. Yep. Uh, yep. Seemed, to, seemed to work out okay for De Niro in Godfather being only a quarter Italian. Uh, <laughs> but uh, not so well for, for the American Dirt author. Uh, what, what did you make of that situation? Yeah, it, it came along too late for me to really uh, uh, dig into. And um, uh, I'm not exactly sure what I would have said about it, except um, sometimes I wonder... Uh, What's the difference between a movie? You know, if that had been a movie, is there something, you know, are books held to a higher standard? Um, And I can't remember if that one was written in the first person or not. Um, But I do remember the scandal and I I, I read the book. And it seems to me in in a lot of ways, just a kind of a a yet another one of these kind of, you know, uh, the market um, hmm, uh, filling the void of inequality of representation, right? And telling a story that um, uh, makes the publishing industry and the readers feel better for reading it, right? And, and so, the, the worse the story, in some in some ways, the better the more successful the project is, right? So it seemed to me like a very classic, and, and that's only, what, what year? Only a few years ago, right? Yeah. 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 That, that's so interesting. I mean, it comes back to this religion thing, doesn't it? I mean, uh, the surname Palmer is, uh, it goes back to pilgrimages, the origin of pilgrimages, at least uh, I think in Catholicism, where if, if to atone for a sin, you yeah. would go and retrieve a palm, from some destination where they'd send you. But you could delegate this task by hiring somebody to go retrieve it for you, a palmer, which became the surname. Um, so, and and I mean, you, you raise, I mean, uh, the big memoir with Albert came out around the same time that Dave Egger's book, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, was exploding in publishing. Yes. Uh, Huge, I mean, reasonably big advance, but I think it got a $2 million movie deal immediately. Still hasn't been made. Um, But this search for authenticity, I mean, it seems kind of, it reminded me a little bit, another kind of adjacent metaphor is the the prostitute who offers the girlfriend experience. Mm -hmm. 
because they want to do it. It's because you want it. You want to pretend that this is something that you know it isn't. But as long as, we, again, it's like wrestling. As long as we pretend it's not scripted, yeah. it's more fun. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed your book and, and chatting. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Take care, Chris. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.